So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Call, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, we all know that relationships are valuable and relationships are worthwhile, but relationships can also be very annoying. It doesn't matter what the relationship is, whether it's a, a spouse, whether it's a parent-child relationship, whether it's a sibling, whether it's a friend. It doesn't matter what the relationship is. There's elements of every relationship. The deeper you get, there's annoyances in that relationship. Uh, I found a list of, of things that people get annoyed with online that people submitted on Reddit, and I added a couple to the list. I think you might be able to identify with a few of these. So things that people get annoyed with. People get annoyed uh, with people who continue to explain something to me after I've said I know at least three times. Uh, people get annoyed with the one-upper. You say that you have a cold, and then they explain to you that they've had pneumonia for the last 10 years. Uh, people who chew loudly with their mouth open. Uh, when someone asks a question but doesn't listen or isn't interested in the answer. Uh, one that really annoys me is when you're driving down the road and then somebody pulls out and cuts you off and then immediately puts on the turn signal in front of you. That they couldn't wait just an extra second to go behind you. Another thing, when you uh, have been thinking about eating something in your fridge, when there's one last piece of pie, and you've been at work all day, and you're thinking about that piece of pie all day, and then you get home, and you open up the refrigerator, and it's gone. Somebody else ate it. When you have to replace the toilet paper every time you go to the bathroom. The morning person. It's 6.30 a.m., and you haven't had your coffee yet, and your eyes are barely open, and this person is going around whistling, <laughs> humming, talking to the birds, just happy as can be, and they're saying, oh, isn't it a beautiful morning, beautiful day to be alive? And you're like, it'd be a lot more beautiful if you'd leave me alone for a few minutes. Some of you are that person, some of you are the morning person, and if you're the morning person, maybe the night person bothers you. And you go to bed at like 8.30 at night, and you hear fireworks going off. You hear a neighbor having a party and blasting music. You hear somebody, you know, listening to television in the room next door. And you're like, don't you realize I'm trying to sleep here? We all have things that annoy us, that bother us. And when we're in relationship, that happens. But the thing that may be surprising to some of us is... Not only do we get annoyed by other people, but other people get annoyed by us. I, I was driving down the road a, a few weeks ago, and uh, it was a two-lane highway, and uh, there was a person in the left lane who was going really slow. And so I can't get by because there's two cars in front of me, 
And, and I'm getting frustrated. I'm just get, getting real annoyed. And Stephanie was in me, with me in the car. And I you know, said something to her about this guy in the left lane going really slowly. And she said very nicely, honey, that's you. That's what you do all the time. And people get annoyed at you. And of course, I didn't admit it in that moment. But now that I think about it, she was kind of right. I kind of do that sometimes. We all get annoyed with things, and people get annoyed with us for things that we do. And oftentimes, it's that we don't understand what people are doing. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe once said this, For many people, one of the most frustrating aspects of life is not being able to understand other people's behavior. We get annoyed with things we don't understand. Uh, if you were to describe the church in Corinth in one word, I think one word that you could use to describe the church in Corinth would be annoying. Why, you, might you ask? Well, the church of Corinth was located in the city of Corinth, and the city of Corinth was a city that was uh, very important militarily and economically. It connected the southern part of Greece to the mainland, and it was uh, important for its trade routes and for its military uh, embankments that people could pass through there. And it had a very rich and lively culture. Uh, there was a lot of idol worship there. There was a lot of philosophy and thinkers in Corinth. Um, you might think of it today as kind of the New York City or Los Angeles of today. It was a place of culture where there were some good things there. There was a lot of commerce, but there was also some bad things there as well. And so the church of Corinth, uh, just to put it very bluntly, was a messed up church completely messed up. Every church is really messed up when you think about it. It's made, of, made up of sinners, but the church in Corinth was really, really messed up. Uh, I mean, you had people that were questioning Paul's authority, saying, you know, I don't know if Paul really is authorized of God, if he really is an apostle. You had factions where some people were saying, all right, I follow Paul, and other people are like, oh, I don't like Paul, I'm following Apollos. Other people were like, well, I don't like Paul or Apollos. I'm following Peter. And others were saying, I don't, I don't follow any of them. I just follow Christ. I, I, I could care less about Paul or Apollo or Peter. And so you have these factions. You have uh, people kind of taking advantage of others in the communion meal. People would come together, and communion back then was not just, you know, where we have our wafer and a little piece of juice. You know, it's just like a little nothing in this now. But, we, I mean, in terms of what you eat... But back then, it was like a real meal. You'd, ha you'd come together, and you'd have a, you know, a full meal. And what was happening in that church is some people would come together, and they would just gorge themselves and get drunk. And other people would come. They didn't have much, and they didn't have enough to eat. So they weren't, weren't even sharing the meal together. Uh, they were messed up in their theology. Apparently, they were misusing uh, the gifts that God had given them. Um, they were engaging in gross sexual immorality. Paul says that they were doing things, allowing things that even the pagans didn't allow. Uh, they were allowing incest, where a man was sleeping with his mother, and apparently they just kind of turned a blind eye to that. Uh, there was prostitution. Uh, some were kind of going off into these crazy ideologies that teach, teaching that sex was bad in any context, uh, even in the context of marriage. And so there was all these different theologies going around the church in Corinth, and it seemed like the more uh, the, everything that Paul told them to do, they did the opposite. And I don't know if Paul had any hair, but if he had any hair, he was probably pulling it out at this point when he was uh, dealing with the church in Corinth. It was an annoying church. It seemed like they were going the wrong direction in every possible way. And so as we look at this passage, I think the 
question I'd like to consider with you is how does Paul respond to an annoying church? And in turn, how do we respond to people who frustrate us or annoy us? Specifically today, we're looking at people who frustrate us or annoy us in the body of Christ. So I think there's four ways that Paul responds in this passage. The first way is that Paul responds with security in his identity. Look at what he says. It says in verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. It's been said that hurt people hurt people. And if we're not secure in who we are, if we're not secure in our identity, then we're never going to be able to do the things that God calls us to do. Again, there were people in this church that, in Corinth that were questioning Paul's uh, credibility. They're saying, is, is Paul really from God? Has he really heard from God? Is he really God's authorized apostle? They were saying, some others were saying, oh, I don't, I'm not going to follow after Paul. I follow after Apollos. I follow after these other teachers or I follow after Christ. And so you have all these things. And imagine that Paul was insecure in who he was. Imagine he's insecure. Then people are questioning his identity, questioning, and maybe he thinks to himself, huh, maybe I'm not really called of God. Maybe I'm not really an apostle. Maybe I should just give this up. Or when people follow after other leaders, maybe he starts to play the comparison game. Thinks, well, what's, what's, what is it about Apollos or what is it about Peter that makes people follow after them? I mean, what's wrong with me? Why aren't people following after me? And so if he's insecure in his identity, he's not going to be able to do the things that God calls, us to, calls him to do. And the same thing is true for us. If we're not secure in our identity, usually we respond to annoyances or frustrations in two possible ways. The first is anger without grace. See, if we're not secure in who we are, when somebody frustrates us, it can be kind of a threat to our identity. And we respond not by in love or not with what Christ wants us to do, but in defensiveness. We're trying to defend who we are. And so Paul, when the people could have brought, when they brought charges against him, hey, maybe you're not really called of God, he could have kind of lashed out in anger and says, do you know what I've been through for Christ? Do you know how far I've come in the Lord? Do you know the experiences I've had with Christ? And he could have just lashed out in anger at them, trying to defend himself rather than speaking the truth. The other thing that we can do when we're insecure in our identity is we speak grace without truth. And if Paul was going to do this, he could have looked at the other teachers and thought, hmm, what are they doing that I'm not? And let's change my message so that to make it more attractive. When we're insecure in our identity, we don't want to say anything that might offend somebody else. Because we fear retribution. We fear how they're going to respond. And we want them to like us. We want them to affirm our identity. And so we just say what's least offensive. What's going to make another person happy rather than what we need to say the truth. And so Paul begins this letter with a declaration of who he is. He's a man who's called of God to be an apostle. And he's going to explain that in other sections of the book. And, and, and describe in other letters who he is. But he starts off with saying, this is who I am. This is my calling. It doesn't matter if you believe that or not. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to speak the truth in love. And when we're secure in who we are in Christ, we can do the same thing. We don't have to lash out in anger to try to defend ourselves against other people. We also don't have to be a doormat. We can speak the truth in love to those around us. So Paul responds first with security in his identity. 
Second, Paul responds by thanking God for the gifts that he's given the Corinthian believers. Note the things that he thanks God for. He thanks God that they were enriched in all speech and knowledge, and they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, it's kind of ironic that Paul would thank God for these things because some of these things were the things that actually got the Corinthians in trouble. I mean, it's their zeal for knowledge, their zeal for wisdom that, you know, led them to, you know, kind of go into speculative theologies and kind of go off on the wrong path. They had this history of apparently misusing the spiritual gifts. And so he's thanking God for some things that are, in a sense, things that they struggled with, things that they uh, took in the wrong direction, things that got them in trouble, and yet Paul thanks God for these things. Now, Paul, again, is not thanking God for the Corinthian sin or the ways that they fall short of, of what they're called to be, but he's acknowledging the gift that God has given to other believers. So when we are annoyed by someone else in the body of Christ, we have a choice in how we respond. We have a choice at how we look at their behavior. And sometimes I think that someone, when somebody else annoys us, it's kind of an indication that we need to change or we need to appreciate that other person. So me and my wife are polar opposites in many ways. And so the first year of being married was a little bit interesting as we kind of tried to work those things out. And so my wife is much better as, I don't know how you say, like spatial awareness. Like she believes things have a place. Me, not so much. So I will put my phone or my keys or my wallet in various places around the house. And each day I'm looking for them. I'll do this with socks. I'll take my socks off, not even remember where I put them. And so I don't have this spatial awareness. I come into the house and just kind of plop things down wherever they may be. And so, especially in the first year of being married, it was frustrating to Stephanie because I would just leave stuff around. And she'd get frustrated by that because she wanted things to have a place. And then I would get frustrated because, I mean, why does she care where my stuff is? It's my wallet. It's my keys. If I wanted to leave it here or there, why does she care where I put it? And so it was a kind of an adjustment for us. But here's the thing. At the core, there's something to be celebrated in each of our personalities. I mean, Stephanie is 175 times better organized than I am. She spends much less time per week looking for things than I do. And so there's a lot to be said for that. And me, on the other hand, I sometimes gloss over those details. I'm kind of oblivious to where stuff is, but sometimes I can see the bigger picture that she can't see. And so you can look at both of those things. There's something to be praised in each one. And so Stephanie, she can look at me and say, huh, maybe, maybe it's not as important as I thought it was that each thing had a place. And thank God for me that I can see the big picture that she can't see. And I, in turn, can thank God for her, and she can be a challenge to me that, huh, maybe I should be a little bit more focused on where I put things. It might save me a little bit of time. And I can also thank God that she helps me find my wallet and keys every single day. I think we need to make a conscious effort to appreciate and thank God for things in other people's life, even if they annoy us. Even if they draw, uh, you know, drive us up the wall, sometimes those are just personality things that God has given to someone else. 
And we need to grow in those areas or be thankful to God that that person can do things that we can't do because we all need one another. Another thing, an example I thought of, something that bothers me is, um, you know, it, it annoys me when I drive down the street and I see somebody on the side of the road holding up a sign that says, you know, John 3.16 or repent, you know, believe or things like that. And the reason it annoys me is because usually, you know, it's an older gentleman who hasn't shaved in like six and a half years, who hasn't bathed in like six months. And I look at it and it's like, is someone really going to become a believer because of that? But what if I looked at it a different way? I mean, you could look at a different like, man, look at that person out there in the cold or the heat. Look at the passion they have to share Christ to those around them. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it the same way. I don't necessarily like that approach, but look at that passion they have. And maybe I should have that passion for reaching people that they have. I mean, we see other people, and we see their gifts, we see their personalities, and we need to allow it to challenge us. We need to thank God for those things. So who annoys you in your life? Could there be a gift beneath the surface? Could there be something in that other person's behavior or personality that that might challenge you to grow? So Paul thanks God for the gifts that God, Paul thanks God for the gifts that God has given to the Corinthians. The third way he responds is he trusts in God's plan for the Corinthians. Look at how Paul refers to the Corinthians. This is just amazing. This is the most amazing part of this passage for me. He refers to them as sanctified, which means set apart, holy. He calls them saints, and he states that Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, these words are incredible to me because, I mean, you go back, you go throughout the rest of the book, and again, this church is messed up. They're the farthest thing from sanctified, the farthest thing from saints, the farthest thing from blameless, and yet Paul trusts in what God is doing in these Corinthians' life. He trusts not because of who they are or what their behavior is. He trusts because God is at work among them, because what if, what Christ has done, that Christ is going to make them holy. And I think that we need to do the same thing. We need to trust that God has a plan in other people's life, even if that plan seems murky, even when it's hard to see. That holiness. We need to trust that God is a perfect Heavenly Father. I mean, imagine that you're driving down the road and it's a busy, uh, busy road, and you see a little kid about my son's age. He's about two years old, and he's running by the side of the road. And you're kind of disturbed by this, and you see him running. You don't see any parent around, and you're worried that this kid is going to get hit. So you drive by, and then you think, I should really go back and make sure this kid is okay. So you drive back and turn around, and as you turn around, you see a different vantage point that you couldn't see before. You see that there's this tree, and there's this boy's father standing just a few feet away from him behind the tree. And relieved, you turn around, knowing that his father is watching over him. I think that we sometimes believe that other people in our lives are just kind of left to their own. I mean, we get annoyed with someone else in, in the body of Christ, and it's like, we got to change them. we got to fix them. And we don't realize they're not our project. God is their perfect Heavenly Father. God is doing some incredible things in their life. God is go the one who's going to perfect them in the day of Christ Jesus. It's kind of like if, you, if ever they used to do these like 
art things where they have like a chalk art thing. I don't know if anyone's ever seen anything like that where they do this presentation and they do all the, the, the you know, do a painting with chalk on the stage. Uh, but if you've ever seen anything like that or if you've seen a painter paint a picture, uh, what's interesting is they'll start off painting the picture and it's at first, it's just like a few lines here, a few lines there, or they might shade this, you know, weird brown and gray and green together, and you look at it, and it's like, is, is this person really an artist? Do they know what they're doing? Like, this looks horrible. I don't have any idea what they're painting. But then they go a little bit further, and it starts to take shape, and in just a short time, it becomes this beautiful picture. And I think the same is true in the way that God grows us in Christ. Sometimes it doesn't look pretty at first. Sometimes it looks like just a, a mass of lines and shading and brown and green all kind of mushed up together. But as believers, we trust that God has a plan for each and every one of us. We trust that God is creating something beautiful. And as believers, one day we will see that in those around us. So we need to trust God's plan for other people. We don't have to change other people. We're responsible for ourselves. Sometimes there's times where we need to speak the truth in love. But ultimately, God is the one watching over other people in our lives. There was a man by the name of James Frazier. In 1908, he decided that he was going to give up his career and he was going to go to China to be a missionary. And so he goes to China to be a missionary, uh, working in Luza land in the foothills of the Himalayans. And he would work in the lowlands and in the highlands. And so he would go and you know, share the gospel with them and, and teach them the Bible and, th and whatnot. And the thing was, the highlands became very difficult to get to in the wintertime. You know, it would take several days just to get there, not, not even to say getting back. It was a treacherous journey. And so basically, he couldn't go there in the wintertime. And he was frustrated by this because he had shared the gospel with them. He had invested in them. And now it's winter. He can't get there, and he can't continue to invest in them. And so he decides he's just going to pray for them and then still invest in the people in the lowlands. Then the spring comes, and he goes to the Highlander villages, and what he found shocked him. He found that through the winter they had been reading their Bibles and praying, and they had actually grown deeper in their faith than did the disciples that he had been investing in each week. He wrote this, If I were to think after the manner of men, I would be anxious about my Lizu converts, afraid for their falling back into demon worship. But God is enabling me to cast all my care upon him. I'm not anxious, not nervous. If I hugged my care to myself instead of casting it upon him, I should never persevere in the work so long. Perhaps never even have started him. But it has begun, been begun in him. It must continue in him. Ladies and gentlemen, other believers are, are brothers and sisters, and they have a perfect heavenly father who's painting a beautiful picture in their lives, and we need to trust that process in other people's life, even if it annoys us sometimes or frustrates us. So Paul trusts the plan of God for the Corinthians, and the final thing that Paul does to respond uh, to this church is that he points the Corinthians to the faithfulness of God. In verse 9, it says, God is faithful by who you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul chooses to point the Corinthians to the truth of the faithfulness of God. He chooses to encourage them and strengthen them. And when we choose to love and encourage those who frustrate us or annoy us, sometimes it changes our hearts towards them. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, once said this, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor 
act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you'll presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The newspaper columnist and uh, minister, George Crane, once told a story about uh, this woman who comes into his office, and she says, I cannot stand my husband. And I want to get divorced from him. Not only do I want to get divorced from him, I really want to stick it to him. I want to make him suffer, make him pay. So Crane looked at her and said, hey, I, I got a plan for you. I know how to really make him suffer. So what you're going to do is for the next two months, I want you to pretend like you love him. Anytime he does anything that's even decent, praise him. Go out of your way to make him feel special. Go out of your way to serve him. Do anything you can to make him feel loved. And then after two months, you drop the bomb on him. Tell him, you're out. You're leaving. Her eyes just filled with glee as she thought about this plan. And she's like, yeah, he's never going to expect that. That's going to really make it's going to really make him pay. So she did it. She, she tried to love him the best way she could for the next two months, planning on leaving him after that two months. But Dr. Crane never heard from her again. So he called her up and said, are you ready to go through now with a divorce? Divorce, she exclaimed, never. I discovered I really do love him. See, her actions had changed her feelings. Sometimes we need to act before we feel. Even when someone frustrates us, even when someone annoys us, if we act in love, if we choose to encourage them, show them the love of Christ, it starts to change our hearts towards them. So those are four ways that Paul responds to this church that you might consider to be an annoying, frustrating church. He responds with security in his identity. He responds by thanking God for the gift that he's given the Corinthians. He trusts in God's plan for the Corinthians, and he points the Corinthians to the faithfulness of God. And when you sum all of these things up, I think the way you sum it up is that we need to look at people like Jesus looks at people. We need to see other believers like Jesus sees them. See, Jesus was secure in his identity. Philippians 2.6 says, 2, says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he was secure in his identity. Jesus has given good gifts to us. Ephesians 4.7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus trusted in the plan of God, even though it meant him going to the cross. The book of Hebrews says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And finally, Jesus pointed us to the faithfulness of God through the cross. Jesus sees us as his workmanship. He sees us as his children. He sees us as his bride. What if we looked at other believers through that same lens? So back in the uh, 16th century, uh, Michelangelo painted uh, the famous Sistine Chapel. It took him four years and uh, one of the most beautiful works of art ever created. Uh, but what's interesting is after it was finished in 1512, it, became an, it was an active church. And so the church members would come in and there weren't any electric lights at that time. So they would burn candles so they could see. And over time, the soot from those candles came and just kind of put this glaze over, uh, over the top of the, of the painting. 
And so after about 400 years, it really started to look kind of discolored. And so uh, all of these restoration experts started to restore it. And it was a very long process. It started in 1984, wasn't finished in 1999. And the thing that was interesting was everybody knew that Michelangelo was an amazing painter. And you know, you think about uh, his picture of Adam, you know, reaching out his hand and God reaching out his hand. It's an incredible picture. And the, um, everybody recognized that. But it was widely believed among the art community uh, that Michelangelo's coloring was just kind of mediocre. I mean, all of the paintings that they had, or most of them, they just kind of looked dull and average and ordinary. But what was interesting is after they restored the painting, they discovered that there were colors beneath the surface. Everyone could see a beautiful, fresh, fresh coloring beneath the surface. They found pale pink, apple green, vivid yellow, and sky blue against the background of warm, pearly gray. You see, when the artist's true intentions were revealed, when that glaze was removed, when that soot was removed, you could see the beauty underneath. If you look to your left, you look to your right, each and every believer, each and every person who's a believer today, you're a masterpiece of God. You're God's workmanship. God is painting something beautiful in you. You know, each and every one of us, we got soot in our life. We got stuff that covers up that beauty. Each and every one of us does. Sometimes it's easier to see it in someone else than to see it in our own hearts, but it covers all of us. But God is slowly removing that sun in each and every one of us. And one day we're going to see the beauty that he's created inside of us. One day we're going to stand before Jesus Christ blameless, holy, pure, beautiful, perfect. So let's view our neighbor as Christ views him. Christ already sees the picture. He knows what he's created us to be. He knows where we're going. So let's look at other believers through that same lens, knowing that God is painting something beautiful in their life. Even when it annoys us, even when it's covered in tar and soot, let's trust that God has a plan. Let's be secure in our identity. Thank God for the gifts that he's given other people. And look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are a God of restoration, that you make beautiful things out of ashes. Lord, we know that each and every one of us are broken, that we're marred by sin, but we also know that for those of us who trust in you, you're beginning that process of restoration. You're taking away all of that soot in our life. And as you do so, you're creating something beautiful here. Lord, as we're living our lives and interacting with one another, we know that there's aspects of any relationship that can be frustrating. But help us to see each other through your eyes. Knowing that you've given each and every one of us different gifts to encourage the body of Christ. Knowing that each and every one of us falls short of your glory. But trusting that you do have a plan. And choosing to love and encourage those around us even when we don't feel it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Worship.